I want to read for us from Romans chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. I'll just read through verse 23. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature, literally in my flesh. The 2011 NIV changes that. Um, and that's what I put on the screen, the 2011. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil's right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. In the past, I've sometimes had occasion to tell you that you're bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. And that's never more important to keep in mind than when we study Romans chapter 7. So remember the illustration from last week. If you weren't here, I'll just update you. Uh, a nation whose dictator has been deposed but whose agents remain embedded, working to bring its citizens back under the, under the control of that old ruler. You, I said, are that nation. In your life, the old dictator has been deposed. We saw that repeatedly in chapter 6. But his operatives are still at work on the inside, often without your direct knowledge. Because remember, you're bigger on the inside than you are on the outside. If you're a Christian, your inside person, that's St. Paul's terminology, is submitted to Christ's lordship, but in the far-flung regions of your body's members, again, St. Paul's language, it can be another matter altogether. The rebels are in control out there in areas of your life, at least for the time being. The inner person makes decisions and issues orders, but they're frequently ignored or countermanded. So in verses 23 and 24, Paul says, In my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. Paul's talking about a civil war here. We thought the defeat of the old dictator, chapter 6, would end the struggle. But it's proved otherwise. Deposing the dictator was necessary, and his defeat is a cause for celebration, but it's not the end of the story, nor is it the end of the struggle. The U.S. learned that lesson in Iraq, didn't it? Just getting rid of the dictator is not all there is to it. Many of us, maybe most of us, can identify with Paul's description of life in Romans 7. I have met over the years many Christians who sing hymns, and they nod their heads in agreement when the blessings of the Christian life are being discussed, but who in Thoreau's words lead quiet lives of desperation. The Civil War has made life a tiresome affair for them. 
Instead of the joy that Jesus promised, they're tired and hopeless and at times ready to give up. And I've been there. But the trouble Romans 7 describes is, this is important, a transitional stage. It's necessary to keep that in mind. Go back to our story of the deposed dictator. A new king is on the throne, but the old bureaucrats who went to work under the dictator are still running those regional offices. And so even though a revolution has taken place, the on-the-ground experience hasn't changed as much as you might have expected. But again, this is a temporary and transitional state. It's every part of you, spirit, soul, and body, is being brought into submission to Christ. But bringing those wild, outlying regions into submission is not simply done for you, as was the case with the dictator's overthrow. That was done for you. This is done with you. You have a role to play in this. It's a subordinate role, to be sure, but it's a crucial one. Scholars have long debated the identity of the person in Romans 7 who's having this terrible struggle. Is it Paul himself? Or is he just using him as himself as an example of every man? Is chapter 7 describing a Christian or a non-Christian? A regenerate or an unregenerate person? The Greek fathers, starting with Origen in the second century, believed Paul was describing his own experience before he became a Christian. They located this terrible struggle in Romans 7 in Paul's pre-Christian days. St. Augustine, who lived a few centuries after Origen, at first agreed with that interpretation, but later changed his mind. He came to believe Paul was describing the battle that goes on in people after they become Christians. The battle between flesh and spirit. Scholars were disagreeing about this 1,600 years ago, and surprise, surprise, they're disagreeing about it still after all these years. But irregardless of what the church fathers conjectured, I can tell you with certainty who Paul is describing. Me. He's describing me, especially in my early Christian life. I don't say that chapter 7 no longer applies to me. But I will say, for your hope and encouragement, that more and more of those entrenched old bureaucrats in the outlying regions have been fired, and the true king is exercising greater control than ever before. Chapter 7 is not a picture of the normal Christian life, the way the Christian life is supposed to be and bound to be, but a picture of a transitional period in the lives of people who have confessed Jesus as Lord. Now, I doubt that all those old bureaucrats can be run out in one lifetime. I at least keep running into them. There are a lot of them because, remember, we're bigger on the inside than on the outside. But the rule of Christ can become more and more complete. The peace of Christ can settle over the entire region, that is, over a person's entire life. That Romans 7 does not represent the normal Christian life can't be stressed enough. Whatever side of the debate that you're on, that the church fathers had and people still have today, everyone agrees about that. This is not the way it's supposed to be. The person described here is stuck in what Paul called the old way back in verse 6 and hasn't learned to navigate the new way that he mentioned there. 
His or her spiritual life is founded on law, not gospel, powered by flesh, not spirit, and characterized by slavery and not the freedom that's found in Christ. The person portrayed in Romans 7 looks a lot like the believers that Paul found in Ephesus when he first arrived there. You can read about that story in Acts 19. They believed in Jesus. They were trying to live as his disciples. Paul calls them disciples. But they were doing that without any experiential knowledge of God's Spirit, which is just what we have in Romans chapter 7. Long ago, the perceptive Bishop Moore remarked on the eloquent silence about God's Spirit in chapter 7 and suggested that it is intentional. It's no accident that chapter 7, which is an exposition of desperation, I don't know what's happening to me, mentions the law 31 times and the Spirit just once. And then as part of a prepositional phrase. But in chapter 8, which is an exposition of joyful hope, the Spirit is mentioned 21 times. The principal difference between the despair of chapter 7 and the hope of chapter 8 is the experience of God in a believer's life through the Spirit. If you read chapter 7 and you do it at one sitting, you're probably going to notice that Paul repeats himself. He essentially repeats what he says in verses 15 through 18 and verses 19 through 22. And sometimes word for word. Did he lose his train of thought and unintentionally repeat himself? No, he's using repetition as a rhetorical device to drive home, to drive deep his point. And in so doing, he portrays a life of good intentions, but really bad execution, of frustrated hopes, of painful confusion, a life that comes dangerously close to despair. The person portrayed in Romans 7 is a changed man, or at least he's a being changed man, who's come over to God's side, has submitted to Christ's rule, and really wants to do the right thing. But for some reason, he keeps doing the wrong thing. He really wants to love his family as God commanded. So why does he keep losing his temper with them? He wants, and he not only wants, he's made up his mind to live a sexually pure life. So why is he so often drawn to lust? He said that what God thinks of him is the most important thing to him. He said it and he meant it. So why does he keep exaggerating and telling half-truths in order to manage people's opinions of him? It's not that he isn't trying. He keeps starting off in the right direction, and he can't explain it. He keeps ending up in the wrong place, back in anger, back in lust and deceit. There are times he's so discouraged that he just wants to give up because it just doesn't seem to be working. He blames himself for not trying harder, but the fact is he does try harder, and it never helps or it doesn't help for long. And so he thinks, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm not cut out for this. I'm not cut out for the spiritual life. Listen to the confusion, verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate to do. Why is this happening to me? I just don't understand. You hear the same confusion repeated in verse 19. 
For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. But why do I keep on doing it? Does that sound familiar? This struggling Christian doesn't know what's happening to him. I do not understand what I do. What he does understand, verse 14, is that he is unspiritual. And verse 15, that nothing good lives in his flesh. Now the word unspiritual translates a Greek word that means fleshly. That is, characterized or dominated by flesh. Paul is talking about the without God way of doing life. It's not a life led by the gentle spirit, but one driven by tyrannous desires, feelings, and especially fears. And in the outlying regions, in the members of his body, that's the way things are. What's causing all the trouble? He answers that question in duplicate. First in verse 17, then in verse 20. Verse 17, as it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Verse 20, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. Now, a lot of people read that and they think, man, that sounds just like a rationalization. Like Paul's making excuses. But nothing could be further from the truth. He has made the important discovery that sin in his members, that's his way of putting it, the old bureaucrats running the show in the outer regions, sin in his members is operating independently of and even in opposition to his will. He chooses not to sin, but he winds up sinning anyway. Why? Because verse 23, the law of sin at work within my members. Let me illustrate. We, in the U.S., we have a president. By the way, the founders, they wanted to get as far away from the word king as they could. So they chose president, which many people didn't like. Because a president is just someone who presides over a board or a committee or something like that. But we have a president who presides over the federal government. We have a vice president and 11 department secretaries and 12 other people who serve in the cabinet. And all of them change at the general election. They all change, right? But things always stay the same, or it seems that way. And that's because we have 23 million other people who work for the federal government worldwide. The change of president and 24 cabinet members, I mean, that's a big deal. But the vast majority of the other 23 million federal workers remain the same which is why people complain that nothing ever changes. Well, let's say that I'm on the federal payroll, working for the Department of Health and Human Services, and I'm a problem employee. I do my job in client oversight, though I don't do it well, and I insist on doing it my own way. And I'm always saying that my superiors don't know what they're talking about. People whose only interaction with the Department of Health and Human Services is through me, they're often very dissatisfied and have unmet needs. See, as long as I'm on the job, things are not going to go well on the ground, no matter what decision Secretary Price, who doesn't even know that I exist, is making in Washington. Paul is telling us that we have those kind of employees on our payroll, so to speak. 
He refers to them as sin in my members. And they are hard to get rid of, but they need to be removed if things are ever going to change. And now we understand why willpower alone can't change us as we need and want to be changed. Citing religious law, this is the first part of chapter 7, won't help because those outlying regions are lawless. Coming to faith in Jesus as Lord is the most important thing that ever happened to you. But now his rule needs to be extended to those members that Paul keeps talking about. Sin is embedded in me through a lifetime of ideas, thoughts, and actions, and it has settled into my character. Okay? I can consciously control thoughts and actions in real time, but I cannot, and no one can consciously control character in real time. It can be changed, thank God, and it must be changed or converted, which might be a better way of putting it. The biblical word for that change or conversion is sanctification. Sanctification is the process of bringing all those members in the far-flung regions of you into submission to the will of Christ. The sin living in me that Paul mentions in verses 16 and 20, Greek something like, the at-home-in-me sin, which takes over in the absence of your direct control, must go. If that sounds overwhelming to you, I have good news. You don't have to get rid of it all by yourself. God doesn't expect you to do it alone. And in fact, you can't do it alone. Remember, you're bigger on the inside than on the outside. There's no way you could do this by yourself. If it were all up to you, you would give up in despair in no time. The cry in verse 24 would be your last word. What a wretched person I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? But that was not Paul's last word. He goes on to say, but thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He knows that God takes responsibility for the work of sanctification just like he took responsibility for the work of justification. He will save us from this body of death and he will do it. We're going to see this when we get to chapter 8. Through his spirit, the one who gives life to our mortal bodies, the spirit who lives in you if you belong to Christ. And there's the difference between chapter 7 and chapter 8. In chapter 7, we learn that sin lives in us, that at home in me sin. But in chapter 8, we learn that the Spirit also lives in us. The at-home-in-me Spirit. See, God had a plan. He's going to bring our entire lives under Christ's rule. Through the Christ who reigns over us and the Spirit who lives in us, God will sanctify us, this is 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, completely, even entirely, spirit, soul, and body, blameless until the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, this isn't all up to us. You have to realize it didn't start with you. And it doesn't end with you. You didn't start life with God by faith and then transition over to willpower as time goes on. That's not how it works. 
The Christian life is not a bait-and-switch affair. It is a God-with-us, God-for-us life from beginning to end. Know for certain, God is not short-sighted. He did not depose the dictator without having a plan in place to get rid of the old bureaucrats that are running the show in our members. Think of what Paul said to the Thessalonians. It's God who will sanctify us entirely. God who will bring those outlying regions about which we know so little and control even less into submission to Christ. Immediately after making that promise to the Thessalonians, as if to reassure discouraged Christians who are just sick and tired of the at-home-in-me sin in my members, Paul reminds them, the one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. How will he do it? That's the subject of Romans 8. We have a part to play in it. We cannot do it without God. But God will not do it without us. Maybe we wish he could. But he won't. And thank God that he won't. He has much better things in mind for us than we have yet dreamed. Being a part of this is one of the great, beautiful works of your life. Don't miss it. Father, take this, what's good in it, and keep it in our hearts and minds. Speak your word, your life-changing word into us, for Jesus' sake. Amen. Let's stand together and we're going to sing. And as we sing,